Do you need some hellfire and brimstone? Let's have some. Nehemiah was willing to fight the good fight and cast a vision of holiness and excellence for the people of God in an era of decay and destruction. He did not wait on anyone else, but he picked up a trowel and a sword and was willing to use them both. We, in this moment, we live in an era of spiritual warfare where our institutions have either been trained not to act on our behalf, sometimes they exploit us, and sometimes they outright work against us. But in this moment, we should not wait on others or our institutions to act on our behalf. Instead, we should be personally willing to pick up the tools of righteousness and fight the good fight of the gospel. Now, there were many fireworks last night. We just came through the 4th of July Independence Day, and they were the most fireworks I've seen in my adult life. Now, this is very relevant because it indicates that a lot of people are repulsed by the destructive and ugly spirit possessing America. People are hungry for an alternative, and there's only one true alternative, only one way that can revive a spirit of greatness, and that is the way of life, the gospel of Christ Jesus. The world wants us to be silent and listen to its feelings of destruction, but now is not the time for this. Now is the time for firm words and strong principles. It's time to say no to the devil knocking on our door and make an affirmative case for holiness. The gospel, it is true, it's powerful, and it calls us to holiness and excellence in all things. We should be people of achievement. We should be people who want to rise up and raise others up with us. And the gospel, it can give us meaning and purpose, and it can give us the authority and responsibility to thwart the most vile evils from hell. So let's open up in prayer, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together wherever we may be hearing this message. Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and minds. Give us strength, wisdom, and encouragement. Give us a firm backbone to stand up for principles. Lord, let us not be weak, but let us look to great aspirations. Lord, let us have hearts of forgiveness and mercy, but also hearts that are serious enough to say no to the evils of this world. Lord, I pray that the world around us, it will have a conviction to turn towards you. Lord, let us not be deceived, but instead let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and we're going to get into Nehemiah 1. So listen closely. We're going to read Nehemiah 1, but I want you to hold your breath before you think this is the weak, pitiful lamentations that we have today. Nehemiah's opening lament is fundamentally opposed to the weakness that we're surrounded by today. And we're going to get into all that in good time, so don't worry. And also, I mean, holding your breath metaphorically. Please don't suffocate doing that. Um, but just hold judgment for a second. Nehemiah 1 reads as follows. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that had survived, those who had escaped the captivity in about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and great shame. For the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinance that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your outcasts may be under the farther skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and strong hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now at that time I was cupbearer to the king. What happens next? What happens next is an amazing revival. You know, we, we just read through the entirety of chapter 1. What happens for the rest of this book is an amazing revival, and we'll get there in the coming weeks. This cupbearer of the king, and it's to a Persian king, by the way. It's not a Jewish some, it's not a Jewish king or an Israelite king with a northern or southern kingdom, but instead, this is a cupbearer to a foreign king. In fact, an enemy king. But we see this man, he realized the institutions around him failed. The Jewish scholarly class, the institutions of Judaism, they were not going to do anything to deal with the great shame and distress that was going on for their people. Nehemiah, he is going to challenge the status quo for the right reasons. You see, there are two reasons why people challenge the status quo. One is because they don't want to pass the test. They don't want to achieve anything excellent, so they just want to tear things down. It's very sad when this happens to people. And that's what we see predominantly going on in our world today. It's not aspirational. It's not something which is wanting to go to a place of excellence, but instead it wants to tear down excellence so that everything can be kind of equal at its lowest common denominator. But there is another reason why people do challenge the status quo, and that is when all the institutions around you have failed, when nothing is willing to stand firm on principles, and you want firm principles to be exerted. Why? Because your God is holy, and therefore it is necessary for you to have strong principles. And that's why Nehemiah is doing what he's doing. Nehemiah, he was willing to fight the good fight and cast a vision of holiness and excellence for the people of God in an era of decay and destruction. He didn't wait on anyone else, but he picked up a trowel and a sword and was willing to use them both. We live here in a moment of spiritual warfare where our institutions, they've either been trained not to act on the behalf of righteousness, or they want to exploit it, or they want to outright work against it. We must not wait on others. Instead, we must be personally willing to pick up the tools of righteousness and fight the good fight of the gospel. Now let's talk about how Nehemiah's lament is fundamentally different than what we see today. You see, Nehemiah, he was ashamed that the walls had crumbled, that God's people had failed to maintain the high expectations set before them. But in contrast, and when I say contrast, I mean a stark contrast, people today, they would be ashamed for ever having a wall at all. We have people who want to reject anything that is good of history. They want to put on sackcloth and wail against the horror of ever aspiring to do something great. Yes, there are sins in history, but... There's also wonderful principles in history that we do well to revere. When we actually look through the world with honest eyes and separate that which is evil from that which is good and pursue the things which have been good and try to go away from the things which have been evil, we can learn a lot. Today in our day and age, people, they aspire for nothing. They're desperate. They wail against the horror of ever aspiring to do something great. Nehemiah, he knew that was certainty. He and all of God's children, they had been designed for something great. All, all sons of Adam, all daughters of Eve. And we today, we must exhume this long buried vision of holiness and teach people that the gospel of Christ Jesus calls us to excellent and achievement 
not to desperation and to destruction. People of the past put on sackcloth because they were ashamed of failing God's great expectations. They were ashamed of failing God's great aspirations for them. But today, people today sing songs of lamentation. We have them in our churches because they don't want to offend God by having aspirations at all. As if having aspirations would be the prideful sin of thinking too highly of ourselves. But here's the truth. God didn't create us in his image to be pitiful, for his image is not a pitiful sight. Adam and Eve were not set apart from all other creatures with the breath of life to be lowly beings who couldn't even perform basic tasks without having a little debrief session and apologizing for their existence. No, Adam and Eve knew they weren't just one debrief session away from doing something meaningful. They knew they were called by God. And they messed up when they walked away from that. Adam and Eve, they were called by God and designed by God to be unique creatures as the kings and queens of this terrestrial domain who serve the high king of all creation. And when we consider the lament of Nehemiah, we must understand that it originates from an impulse to be holy and excellent because Nehemiah's God is holy and excellent. Nehemiah's humility is in its proper place, and it's fundamentally different from how many operate today. The old sackcloth was put on because people like Nehemiah realized they didn't live up to the high expectations that God thought of them. Now, people misunderstand humility today to think that it means you don't think highly of yourself at all. Why? Because they have forgotten that their God is holy, and therefore they too should be holy. Today we have an abscessed understanding of humility. It's infected. It's like a dislocated shoulder. And a perpetual state of waking up has consumed our vision of the shirt, of the church, our vision of worship. You know, we sing, you know, wake me up, Lord, into perpetuity without ever wanting to be awake and function. Wailing and desperation has replaced the impulse of the church to do great things. You know, where is the impulse of the church to make hospitals that heal God's children, beautiful windows that illuminate God's teaching, and the great vessels to cross uncharted seas so that we can serve the throne of heaven? Our day and age, we respond to things with real fear. We call so many things in the modern day and age fear that aren't fear. Disagreement's not fear. Reservation about changing something, that's not fear. Wanting to have a different music style or different format, so that's not fear. We call stuff fear that's not fear. We call things phobias that aren't phobias. Real fear is where you say, well, you know, they might come after me. I might get a lawsuit if something happens. I might have people dislike me if something happens. Real fear is when you say, well, we might get sick. Somebody might blame me for something. That's real fear. If you want to see real fear, watch how people reacted to the coronavirus. Real fear came out there. They'll call it prudence or something like that, but real fear came out there. The scripture tells us that God is slow to anger, not that he doesn't get angry. And one of the shortcomings of this modern day and age is that we live in an age that pretends as if time does not exist. That's why we sing songs of awakening, you know, awaken into perpetuity. We sing those because we pretend as if time does not exist. We sing songs of awakening because we forget that we should have already been awake and functioning fully without the grogginess of sleep. Our world, it can forget news stories from a week ago, and it can pleasure itself by ignoring and erasing history. It pretends as if the things which failed us before will not fail us again if we try one more time. It pretends as if everything is fine. In this era, it thinks that every moment is the beginning of testing God's patience and fails to acknowledge that we are deep into the dark valley, not at the start. We fail to weigh the fruits out of different things. We fail to weigh the fruits of different programs that we have. Why? Because we always think that this is just the first moment of it. You know, we'll try this again. Maybe just one more. 
debrief session, maybe one more, you know, training that centered around feelings rather than something which is long-term meaningful. Nehemiah knew that this mentality would not build up the kingdom of God. Waiting to see if the same stories produce different endings is foolish, and it keeps us from revival. And let me restate that little last ending there. When you wait around to see if the same stories will produce a different ending, it's foolish, and it keeps you from revival. So here's a big secret. It's a secret our world doesn't want you to know. Politicians don't want you to know. This Hollywood doesn't want to know it. And I'll also throw this one out there that's probably going to get a little people upset. Your universities don't want you to know this. Yes, even your Christian universities don't want you to know this. And sometimes even those within our own church structure don't want us to know this. Here's a little secret. You, well, actually, it's a big secret. You do not have to have a seat at the world's table to change the world. You don't have to be an official in the institution. You don't have to have a seat at the table. You don't have to be in the conversation to change the world. You don't. You don't. Nehemiah is not a Jewish scholar. Nehemiah, he's not some chosen prince. He's not, you know, a, a priest. He's not a Levite. Jesus, he's not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. You look at the early Christians. They're kind of thrown out of everywhere. They get thrown out of the churches, or excuse me, they get thrown out of the synagogues, their churches do, and they get exiled by Rome. They don't have a seat at the world's table. They're not part of the world's conversation, but yet they overtake Rome. Moses, you know, the Egyptians hate him because he's not really an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. And, you know, the Hebrews hate him because he was raised in the, the palace there. He's not really a part of either conversation, but he changes the world. You look at his mother, Jochebed. We don't know too much about her, but, you know, she wasn't somebody that had some big official role in institution, but yet she loved her son as God wanted her to. She changed the world. Look at Mary and Joseph, Zachariah Elizabeth. You look at people all throughout the biblical history. It's a lie to say that you have to be part of the conversation to change the conversation. No, you don't. History tells us if you get worked inside those things, you're probably not going to do anything to change them. You're not going to hold them accountable, probably not going to move them the needle one way or another. That's why the biblical models of revival follow two categories. One, individuals who they start spreading like a fire and it spreads out. Nehemiah is one of those cases. The other bottle of revival we find is that a whole generation has to die in the wilderness because nobody inside the seat at the table, nobody that was part of the conversation wanted to change anything. The biblical model doesn't say that people from within institutions typically change them. It doesn't. And you know, it's a lie from hell used to blind people from the truth that revival starts with you. Don't wait on your institutions to cast the vision and stand firm on God's principles because they've either been trained not to fight for you or they are outright turned against you. Just as Nehemiah didn't wait on the priesthood or the Jewish expert class, we shouldn't wait on our universities or Christian leaders to do the work for us, much less the courts, our lawmakers, or our worldly forces. The true calling of Christ, it starts with each of you. And yes, we do love people. And even as I'm saying this, I don't want to anybody think that I'm just hating on people. You know, everybody can repent, come back in. We'll walk to the way of life ourselves. We'll, or together. We'll, we'll enjoy. We're not going to hold anything against anyone. We come together as a body, and it's necessary that we do so. But we must not allow ourselves to be left in chaos and decay if our leaders do not take initiative in casting a vision of holiness. Real vision of holiness, an affirmative one. Not just one that's here to clean up a mess here or there, but the affirmative march forward vision of holiness. We are like a body, but with one member of the body, if the shoulder gets dislocated, it's not going to fix itself. You've got to have something else to help it. And scripture tells us what we are to do. And let's get into that affirmative vision of holiness, shall we? Jesus gave us the great commission to seek the lost and baptize them into the faith. Furthermore, Jesus also commissioned us with a great many tasks that build up the great commission. We are to heal the sick and cast out demons. 
And we are in an age that has far too few exorcisms and far too few excommunications. There are all sorts of evils that infect and possess people, turning them into mobs. God didn't design us to be in a mob. There are things which reduce people down to where we're not even operating on our own conscience, but some sort of collective conscience. That's not what we were designed to be. That is something that is inhuman. We must cast these things out and fight the good fight of the gospel. Let us have a firm understanding of how to use a sword and trowel. First, know on the Lord Christ Jesus and you will be saved. You get that right and everything else will get a little bit clearer. I'm not going to say it's going to be easier that you'll have immediate clarity, but God will work with you and sanctification comes. We need to act on principles, not on laws. Scripture is filled with people who broke laws to pursue holy principles. We don't teach our children the story of Daniel because he followed all the laws. We don't teach our children the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they bowed down to the golden statue. Again, earlier I mentioned that there's two reasons why people challenge the status quo. There's two reasons why people challenge laws. One is because they realize their institutions have failed them. You look there in Daniel chapter 6, the institutions failed. Totally failed. Darius throws Daniel into the lion's den, even though Darius is Daniel's friend. Darius wasn't willing to challenge something which was obviously being corrupted. When we look throughout the New Testament, you don't find stories of Jesus going into pagan temples or indulging in pagan orgies, even though there was something called the Pax Deorum, where you were required to worship the approved gods of Rome. You look in the early church, many of them were killed because they wouldn't do this. They were accused of atheism because they wouldn't indulge in paganism. The early church was boiled alive, put on the hot seat, crucified upside down, stoned every way that you could imagine. Our early brothers and sisters in Christ were executed because they willingly broke the laws of Rome. And it wasn't because they wanted disorder or chaos, but it was because they wanted something aspirational. They wanted something higher, not something lower. So that being said, focus on truth, honor, nobility, perfect justice, purity, beauty, goodness, and all that is virtuous and worthy of praise. Don't apologize for anything you haven't done. We have enough sin of our own, and Jesus himself does not ask you to do this. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, he doesn't ask him about all the sins of the Pharisees and make him apologize for them or say, oh, the Pharisees, they've had some unique thing. Therefore, you know, you've got to apologize that. Doesn't happen. Jesus meets Nicodemus where he's at. He shows him what it means to be born again, and he shows him the path of salvation. And, you know, on this topic of don't apologize for anything you haven't done, don't even entertain accusations from those who demand destruction and deconstruction. Don't. That's an indicator that people hate forgiveness and they hate honor and beauty. Instead, encourage forgiveness and extend olive branches to people who have bought into evil worldviews and belief systems. We've got to extend olive branches to people. There are people in our churches who have bought into worldly belief systems. We have programs, even in our theological departments, that Hollywood would approve of. And yeah, I'm calling out social justice. If Hollywood would approve of it, it's probably because it's not Christian. You know, there might be a heresy even in the name of grand, granting salvation by association and damnation by association. If you're adding morality to groups of people rather than individuals, that's not something Christ does, and it's not something the New Testament teaches us to do, y'all. If Hollywood approves of it, it's probably a reason. Pursue people who will welcome you and hear your words, not people who will have you. Sodom and Gomorrah will have you, but they won't welcome you, and their fate is destruction. Love your neighbor and your enemy. And remember, Jesus showed us that loving your neighbor it means casting out the evil forces that possess them. You know, sometimes people do invest in these bad ideas. They invest in worldly belief system, and they try to synchronize them with the church. We've got to see past that. 
And even though I just called out the whole social justice movement, you know, I can see past it. I love these people and I want them to repent and move away from it. We're going to preach the real gospel of Christ Jesus because that is the only thing that can bring us up. Everything else just wants to equalize us down in the pit. See past the wicked ideas that people have and pray for them as individuals. Work with them as individuals. Don't look for top-down macro solutions. That's not the biblical model for revival. The biblical model of revival is it starts in your heart and mind and the heart and mind of every child of God. It's a personal thing. It's what's so unique about Jesus. Work with your hands, as even Jesus did. For doing so will remind you that bad ideas have a cost. You know, the more we work with our hands, the more we realize if I make a bad estimation, if I have a bad explanation, if I have a bad model, a bad design, a bad understanding of something, there's a cost. Work with your hands. Jesus, he goes out and he fishes with others. There's a cost if you make a mistake in that. Jesus, we have stories of him being a carpenter. Well, there's reasons. You know, Jesus understands the value of working with our hands. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and not conform to a world that insists you are selfish in hurting others by being an individual who makes decisions. This is very common in the day and age of coronavirus, the princeps elector, the chosen prince of demons that has the power of election. It can decide who is going to live and who is not, who is essential and who is not essential. And that whole language of essential, non-essential is evil. It's totally evil. It's straight out of the pits of hell. Anybody that uses that language or plays that game, and yeah, it's a game, it should be mocked. They're not capable of understanding beauty. You know, I went to the hospital one time. There was a family. I went with the family. They were having to take their son off life support. This was early in the coronavirus whole scenario, and people were told, you can't come inside and make that decision because... Well, for your own safety, you need to stay outside and decide whether or not to take your son off life support. Yeah, the worldview that plays essential and non-essential, yeah, it can't it can't appreciate beauty. I know I quote Philippians 4:8 a lot, you know, truth, nobility, honor, purity, justice, truth, all those things. Yeah, if you're playing the game of essential, non-essential, you have no appreciation of of beauty, none. No nobility, no honor. Yeah, you can't get it. Because safety is not an imminent virtue in a Christian worldview. So that being said, work with your hands, and that'll keep you clear of a lot of this, but, you know, we have to work for God. You know, this message that says you are selfish and hurting others by being an individual who makes decisions rather than just shutting up and listening to the expert class, that is the message of Legion. Legion, yes, the terrible and powerful collective of demons who want to possess you and replace your soul as the force of your existence. Yeah, reject it. Reject collectivism and group identities altogether. Define yourself with Christ alone. I don't care who comes to you and says, yeah, you, can be, you can't be colorblind, but stereotyping is bad, but you have to lower your IQ to hold those two things at the same time. You know what? Follow the biblical model. Don't, don't look at people as Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, free, whatever. Don't look at any of that. Instead, look to them as your neighbor. Start from there. Don't, don't do all this preconception stuff or, or silence yourself because you don't have the right expertise or perfect knowledge. We're not Gnostics with hidden secret knowledge that's important to morality. Define yourself with Christ alone. Everything else is from hell, and it is taking you to hell. And for people who bought in this stuff, we love them. Send them out an olive branch and say, look, repent, come on. We'll forget it and move on. You don't need perfect knowledge or all the answers, and it's a lie to say that you do. For our Lord, our Creator, our Master, the one who will judge us and judge all the living and the dead, Coming to him saying, I believe, help my unbelief, that will suffice. But you've got to be willing to pick up a sword and trial. You've got to be willing to defeat the evil and build up the kingdom of God with manual labor. Yeah, you're going to have to get a little dirty. You're going to have to put in some sweat. Don't hold safety as an imminent virtue. For those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for the sake of Christ will find it. 
And yeah, that means what it means. Even in the era of coronavirus, the princeps elector, chosen prince of the idolatrous God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you know, the one that has the power to make edicts, laws, and decide who lives and dies. Yeah, it's those who seek to save their life will lose it. But those who find the name of Christ and they lose their life for that sake, they'll find it. Yeah, that's, it's, yeah, it's true. Fear not that which can kill the body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yeah, yep. Know on the Lord Christ Jesus and you will be saved. It's great. It's wonderful assurance there the idolatrous god of this age doesn't want men to be men or women to be women so speak the truth of our noble design look upwards to our heaven with the great and aspirational goals and not desperate to pits of victimhood for our god is an awesome god and don't separate truth from compassion and don't let people bear false witness in the name of compassion because that's not a good foundation there's a lot of people who want to do this they kind of are only looking for facts to support their narrative and they play that game I mentioned earlier when it comes to compassion, when they feel like this is the first time we're here. Why don't we just try this new thing? We're going to try this new, you know, whatever fake virtue we've got today. No, this isn't the first day. We've been doing this stuff for a while. The fruits are in. If it's not in the gospel of Christ Jesus, it doesn't actually take the world to an aspirational place. It don't. Look for comfort and peace in the holy presence of God, not in the grossness of our surroundings. Fear God and recognize that you are accountable to him. Be loyally righteous to him. Then go out of your way to dissolve evil and dishonest gain. Don't give an ear to all voices, for not all voices are interested in truth. It's one of the great lies of our day and age that says, well, if you're open-minded, you'll see people better. No, you won't. No, you won't. That's how you get consumed by evil. Not all voices are, are equally interested in truth. Sitting down to hear someone's story doesn't mean they're being honest with you. Um... You know, a good 5 to 10% of the population has antisocial personality disorders where they're going to take advantage of that. You know, don't give an ear to all voices. Not everyone's interested in truth. And on that note, don't even have the conversation with the serpent on whether or not the fruit is good for food. Yeah, Eve, she has that conversation with the serpent on whether or not that fruit is good for food. And you know what? It probably was good for food. But when the whole picture wasn't, there are conversations designed to use a partial truth to take you to a place of evil. Reject conversations altogether if you sense deception and let your peace return to you. Scripture gives us the, the assurance that says we can do that. You can, if they're not going to welcome you, they're not going to hear your words, they just want to have you, they want to consume you, don't. Jesus says you can let your peace return to you. Yeah, you can pray for them and you can love them, but you don't have to, to go in there and just wallow in mud. And on that note, conversations on race, coronavirus, and politics are designed to be dishonest. The idolatrous God of this age will not permit truth on these subjects to be spoken in the public sphere. Therefore, you're wasting your time doing it. And, and, and let me posit this for you as well. Have you ever thought that the reason why the world wants us to talk about race, coronavirus, and politics is because it gives power to the idolatrous God of this age? You ever thought that? It, it'll let you talk about that, but it won't let you talk about the gospel of Christ Jesus in the public sphere. One of those things will cure the sinful problems and sufferings. One of them won't. Hmm. Yeah, instead of having the conversations that all the corporations, mainstream media, the politicians, Hollywood, want you to talk about, well, you need to be talking about the things they don't want us to talk about. This is plain and simple. So let's talk about sanctification a little bit. Since we're going through a whole list of things, sanctification, it doesn't mean having a calm, serious, and collected brow. For the devil can speak through a calm, serious, and collected brow. Truly sanctified people will have eyes to see and ears to hear and be empowered to act accordingly. Sanctified people do not tolerate evil, but sometimes they make an ugly scene that repels people because they cast out evil while it foams at the mouth. And 
On this topic of sanctification, let me posit a definition of sanctification for you. Sanctification is having eyes to see and ears to hear and being quickened to act accordingly. You know, sanctification, the second work of grace, you know, we get saved and then as we continue our walk, God comes and he works another work of grace in our life. What we find is that that should change how we believe and how we view the world. So often we talk about sanctification purely in its opposition to sin, which it is opposed to sin, but we don't make the affirmative case for how it should change how you view the world. It's not just about a temperament or an attitude, and it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to be politically popular. This whole idea that sanctified people, they have that mature tone and everybody likes them and says, ah, yes, they're reasonable people. Uh, No, that doesn't happen biblically. Biblically, you find sanctified people going out and doing things that the world gets really, really mad at. You know, there's a lot of scriptures telling you that you're going to be hated if you truly live out the biblical worldview. So know that wolves in sheep's clothing are real. They are among you in your house and church. Know that there is one who is truth, and truth does not only exist if you believe in it. And in all things, shine light on the darkness. Speak truth where others lie. The kingdom of heaven is near, for God is always near. His holiness does not permit darkness. And we are in an age that has far too few exorcisms and far too few excommunications. Unity for unity's sake is a fake virtue, and only through common good can unity ever aspire to be good. Be an honorable and noble champion with Christ, and don't let anyone restrain you. I know in our day and age it's popular to say, don't be a hero. You know, wait on your representatives, wait on the experts, wait on the scholars, wait on all this stuff. Don't, 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 don't. It's a lie from hell to keep you from revival. Know on the Lord Christ Jesus and you will be saved. Work out your faith in fear and trembling. Yes, we live in a collective, but we are not ourselves and our brother. There's a distinction that the world doesn't want you to make. They like to play this whole bait and switch between being an individual and a collective. You know, Scripture tells us you are your brother's keeper, but you're not yourself and your brother at the same time. God doesn't hold you accountable for your brother's deeds. We do live as individuals, and when other things get sick in the world around us, we have to step up to the plate. We don't sit idle and just spell, be like, well, you know, that's not my part of the body, so I guess I don't do anything. No, 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 no. Wasn't Nehemiah's job either. He was the cupbearer to a king, and he knew how to use a sword in a trowel. So let's get back to talking about Nehemiah. Because he was a unique man. He's truly a unique man. But not because he had some unique intelligence or expertise, because he spent so many times and had so many degrees behind his name, but because he had well-focused eyes to see and ears to hear the aspiration of his God. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Therefore, it wasn't likely that he had actually ever wielded a sword or ran a construction project in his life. He may have never even done fisticuffs with anybody. You know, he may have never waited for anybody out in the parking lot to give them what they needed. He wasn't an expert in any of these fields, nor was he a high priest or some other figure that the Jewish people expected to represent them or take responsibility in leading them. But he was a man that feared God. He was a man that knew that God expected high things of him. And when he saw the decaying state of the world and saw that none of the other institutions of the people of God were going to do anything, he said, well, I guess it's up to me. Between me and God, and he goes and he spends his time fasting and praying. He fasts, he prays for days, and he says, God, give peace to your servant because I'm doing it. And he took initiative and he acted. He didn't wait on anyone else. He didn't wait on the priesthood, some royal descendant, an official in the world. He knew something had to be done, and he knew something that we have forgotten. He knew that revival begins when individuals stop waiting on others to start. And they start themselves and they stand for the holy principles of God. And it was by this impulse that Nehemiah picked up a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other and let it be emphasized he was not hesitant to use them. 
He's going to get, you know, dirty doing some manual labor. You know, Sambalot and Tobiah, they make fun of his wallet. Man, it looked bad. Man probably never did anything like this before, but he says, you know what? Don't you listen to them. You build that wall. I don't care what they're saying. Build the wall. Build it. May look bad for the first hundred feet, but it'll look fine. We're going to go back and fix it. It's going to be beautiful when we're done here. Even though he may have never used such tools before, he wasn't separated from the basic laws of causes and effects like many of our thinkers are today. God designed men to work with their hands, and, and men especially really need to be working with their hands to properly understand the world. There are some differences between men and women. It's okay to say that. It's our noble design. It's just true. That doesn't mean that we're held morally accountably different, that we have any moral superior order to one another. We're both absolutely necessary for the <laughs> continuation of the human race. There's only one model for that that really works. It's just how it is. It's how God designed us. But many of our thinkers in society today, they forget that their ideas might be wrong. They forget that they might be wasting their time on stuff that's really dumb. There's a unique amount of dumbness that can come from only living a life where you don't work with your hands. People that have a lot higher IQ than me, people that know a lot more languages than I do, but yet they espouse some really terrible ideas that don't work in the real world because they have ceased to work with their hands. They think that their ideas must be correct because they spend a lot of time thinking about them. But the truth is, is that their measurements and explanations of the world might be wildly inaccurate. Nehemiah was not prey to this folly because he had eyes to see and ears to hear clearly. And I want to offer you that definition of sanctification again, which really is an addition to what we see there in, say, Article 10. I want to emphasize that being sanctified is having eyes to see and ears to hear while being empowered to act accordingly. This means that those who have been saved, they experience a work of grace in their life and they see and hear as God intended. And they're given the power and motivation to live in a way that matches that clarity of sight. Now, the reason why I say this is a definition, because that's something you can stick in your pocket and carry around with you. Eyes to see, ears to hear, and you are empowered to act accordingly. You're not going to sit idle while evil is advanced. You're not going to open the door. You're not going to sit there and say, you know, I need to talk with the serpent about whether or not that fruit is good for food. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Sanctified people shouldn't be doing that, and I'm, they're not truly sanctified if they are. They should have a, a close enough relationship with God where they have those eyes to see and ears to hear, where they, they can tell the difference between what is a, a terrible game of evil that they shouldn't be playing and what is not, where there is actually you know time to, to get out and actually sow some seeds. There are times to, to use that trowel in one hand, and there are times to use that sword in the other. There are people in our world who act as if being sanctified has everything to do with temperament, attitude, and how you interact with others, but nothing to do with your worldview or beliefs. I can't believe how appalled I was. I went to General Assembly, picked up a new Beacon Bible commentary, and saw pages written on socialism and how that was close to the New Testament. You know, every time I read Acts chapter 2, I don't ever see a government in there. People always use Acts chapter 2, the miracle of the church with the holding things in common, and say, ah, oh, yes, we need socialism. You know, I read Acts chapter 2. There's no government. There's no language of class warfare. There's no bourgeoisie proletariat. Just a bunch of men and women transformed by God who are willfully loving one another, not being forced, not doing fake charity via government. Doesn't happen. So that being said, we need to stop talking about the subjects our world wants to make us talk about and start talking about the ones that our culture wants to remove from the table. You ever think there's a reason why they deplatform people? There's a reason why they don't want certain ideas out in the world? It's because they liberate. They show the Christian liberty that is liberty from, not liberty to, just indulge in sin. The world doesn't want to talk about the healing and exorcising. Not exorcising, we probably need to exorcise more, but exorcise, E-X-O, like exorcising a demon, casting it out. 
The power of the gospel is the power to heal and cast out evil. And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about biblical orthodoxy and the biblical ethic, which has stood the test of time. All these people that want to deconstruct stuff, no, it's terrible. Don't wait on others. You know, I mentioned the book of Daniel and how you see Daniel, he's thrown into the lion den there in chapter 6. King Darius does it against his will. The institutions failed. Daniel might have hoped. He said, well, Daniel's my friend. Daniel, or excuse me, Darius and Daniel are friends. Daniel might have said, oh, King Darius is my friend. I've got a seat at the table. He won't throw me in the lion's den when he sees this obvious scam. But King Darius did throw Daniel in the lion's den despite the obvious scam. They lied to Darius's face, man. And then Cyrus the Great because again, the Medians, Persians that are together, you'd say, well, surely Cyrus the Great, he would smite these guys. They'd be smote before they could even get their first word out of the mouth that they tried this scam on him. Surely he'll save Daniel. No. None of your institutions are coming. You work out your faith between yourself and God because God is the one who brings salvation. Not any worldly government, not any politician, not any Hollywood movie, not being affirmed on social media. It always amazes me, a lot of our Christian institutions, they want so desperately the approval of the culture around. They don't want to be called a bigot. They don't want to have anybody say that they're, they're a phobe of some sort. So they, they just want those people. They want the approval of people who want their destruction. And that's not what loving your neighbor looks like. Loving your neighbor says you don't want the approval of the things that destruct you. You want the approval of God alone, and you love the people who want to destroy you, and you want to cast out the wicked ideas they have and let them come to the biblical worldview. Scripture tells us what we are to do. And Nehemiah understood that the walls of Jerusalem were bigger than just a pair of walls. It's bigger than all that. It's a bigger vision. It's a beautiful thing, a noble thing. And our world is actually quite ripe for revival. There are far more people lighting fireworks. And the reason is because people are hungry for something deeper. And we as the church, we have to cast that vision. Let's cast the vision of holiness in our world. People are hungry for an alternative to the chaos and sin of our world. And all the problems and sufferings we have in our world, they originate from sin. And guess what? The antidote is the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's no accident that the idolatrous God of this age has corrupted our public sphere to the point where you can't make an argument on what is holy and what is sinful, but you can make an argument on what is secularly legal. You can make an argument on race or insert class warfare here, but no, 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 don't you dare speak about God. Hmm. Yeah, that's not an accident. It's by design, folks. Go out there, preach the gospel. We're all priesthood of believers. And once we have fasted and prayed, it's time to pick up a sword in a trial. We love people. And even when those within our midst, they, they make mistakes, we forgive them. We move past it. Let's come together and cast that vision of holiness for our world. So on that, let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And on that note, God love you, and have a blessed day.